Welcome to Redeemer this morning. Thank you for getting out on such a beautiful morning to worship God and be in God's house together. You know, as I was thinking about how beautiful it was when I got up this morning, uh, some words from Psalm 19 came to mind. And here David is reflecting on the God who continues to speak his message through creation. And listen to what he says. He says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God, the skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak, and night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word, their voice is never heard, and yet their message has gone out throughout the earth, and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete, eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. But then, for some reason, David shifts gears in this psalm. And it really, the second part of this, um, really relates to our message this morning as, it, as we're going to be talking about the church in Pergamum from Revelation chapter 2. And uh, here's what David says, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true, each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant and a great reward for those who obey them. Let's pray together. We come into your presence today, faithful God, bringing our deepest longings along with our questions and our fears and our complaints and our joy. And it is in this place that you encompass us with the light of your truth and your limitless power and your boundless love. And it's here that our self-centered concerns are put in perspective. It's here that we recognize that Christ is in our midst, the word of God that took on human flesh so that we could know you more fully. And as we recognize Christ among us, help us to come without fear or thoughts of favor, but just open ourselves up to your transforming grace and let the intentions of our heart become clear and our everyday problems be lifted to the surface. Holy God, receive our worship and inspire us by your spirit as we study your word and as we go forth to live and to serve others. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, again, welcome this morning, and thank you for uh, being here. If you haven't already, I invite you to reach in your worship folder, pull out the connection card that looks like this. Uh, If you're a first or second time guest with us, if you fill out this card and drop it in the offering plate later in today's service, uh, we will donate $5 in your name to Safe Center, the domestic abuse shelter for Clinton and Shiawassee County. Uh, But we'd just like to know who you are and that you're here today with us and send you a small token of our appreciation. There's also room for prayer concerns on this card. If you want to share anything with our staff, please do it by the card, and then uh, you can drop that in the offering plate, as I said, later in today's service. In the New Testament book of 2 Timothy, we read these words, All Scripture is inspired by God 
and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us what to do uh, right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Today we're in the fourth week of this teaching series called, called A Tale of Seven Churches. It's a tale of seven letters, I'm sorry. And we're working through the first three chapters of the very last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, and the letters that Christ wrote to these seven churches which are in modern day Turkey. And today we're focusing on the church at Pergamum. This is a church, strong church at one time, that got into trouble because it gave in to moral and spiritual compromise. Not unlike a lot of churches today, one of the big issues was the role of scripture, God's holy word. Was God's word the truth that needed to be obeyed? Or simply, is God's word a bunch of suggestions that change with the times? I told you um, a few weeks ago that uh, in this series there were gonna be a couple of challenging messages and today is one of them. So pray for your pastor while you're at it today. But this week and next week are pretty challenging messages to these churches. Um, and it's the same battle though that we face today in the church. And many of the mainline denominations, including our own United Methodist Church, are facing the same issue. Is the Bible God-breathed and useful for showing us the truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, and training us to live God's way? Do we believe that through this word, we're put together and we are shaped for the tasks that God has for us? In the United Methodist Church, as many of you already know, we are at a crossroads on some of the big social issues of our day. Uh, and how the church will respond is part of our current challenge. Um, but I believe the issues of the social issues go deeper to a deeper issue. Um, and the deeper issue is uh, a theological and a spiritual issue. What do we believe about the word of God itself? Uh, we are a welcoming church. Uh, we are welcome, uh, a church that welcomes all into our fellowship. Um, but the, the issue then is still the authority of God's word. How do we, how do we view the authority of scripture? Uh, John Wesley, who founded the United Methodist Church, insisted that scripture is the first authority and contains the only measure by which all other truth is tested. It was delivered by authors who were divinely inspired. It is a rule sufficient of itself, he said. It neither needs to be or capable of any further additions. But today we have those in the church who believe that the Bible is a document that is not the final authority on things, a document that should change with the times. And this is the dilemma that we find at the church in Pergamum. And we're gonna to see today how Christ addresses their desire to compromise on this one extremely um, sensitive issue. Pray with me, will you? Gracious and loving God who leads and teaches and guides us, you who offer compassion and grace and mercy, we invite you to be with us. Even now, passionately, we need your presence in these challenging times and circumstances in which we live. We, as part of your body, the church, go into the days and weeks ahead seeking to discern your deep desire for us, even as a church here at Redeemer and the United Methodist Church at large. 
So give us courage as we continue to live and respond to your invitation to be your hands and your feet and your voice in this world. We ask for a fresh wind of your spirit and the guidance for each of us as individuals um, to know how to respond and how to live out the faith that you've called us to. We ask for wisdom. We ask for your presence. For those who have been called to lead your church, grant us clarity and a discerning spirit as we seek to listen for you in our midst. Reveal to us your deep desire for our future as a congregation. Give us the faith to lay aside our personal needs and wants so that we can be truly present with you this day to sit in reverence and awe and listen deeply for the still small voice that you speak to us. And we lay all this before you today with a deep desire in our heart to know Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let me ask you, would you rather be known as open-minded or narrow-minded? We know the answer to that question, don't we? A quick check of the synonyms reveals the essential difference between those two terms. If we're open-minded, we're likely to be seen as accepting, tolerant, observant, unbiased, understanding. But if we're narrow-minded, we may be viewed as bigoted, opinionated, reactionary, intolerant. So we know the answer, what the answer is supposed to be. And I'm guessing that most of us would prefer to be thought of as open-minded. But is that always a good idea? Herschel Hobbes makes the point this way. He said, no sane person wants a banker who says that two plus two equals three. We do not want a pharmacist who just throws together any drugs that may suit their fancy. We want that person to follow exactly the doctor's prescription. That is true narrow-mindedness. We commend this quality in lesser matters of finances and health, but we condemn it in matters of religion. Here's another question for you. Where God has spoken in scripture, do you believe his truth is up for debate? We don't often hear people openly debate parts of the Bible like the 10 Commandments or the 23rd Psalm, and most Christians can quote Jesus when he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. But do we believe that? In a culture where we are now exposed to many different religious beliefs, where the tendency is to give them all equal validity and equal merit. You see, Christians are often accused of being narrow-minded about God's truth. We believe something that many in our world today find incredible. We believe that God has spoken in his word and that his word is true and it is to be obeyed. Writing to the church at Pergamum in Revelation chapter two, beginning with verse 12, Christ confronts a congregation that had become too open-minded for its own good. We, hear, we need to hear what our Lord says because many churches today find themselves in that same position and some would suggest that includes our own United Methodist Church. So what do we learn when we read this letter from Jesus? Well, let me suggest five important things this morning. First, we learn that no church can live on its past. The church at Pergamum certainly had a great heritage, strong church. 
And during days of intense persecution, a man by the name of Antipas had paid the ultimate price for his faith. Look at verse 12 and 13. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, and yet you have been loyal, you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Now, we know nothing more about Antipas than what is said here. What does matter is that Jesus knows his name and knows that he would not give in to the pressure around him. And though forgotten on earth, he is remembered in heaven. So it is for all the brave martyrs through the centuries. Most of them are unknown and unnamed to the church at large, but their blood has become the seed of the modern church worldwide. But where there is heroic virtue, great danger also lurks. A church with such a great reputation, great past, may assume that it is meeting the challenge of the present day in the same way. Was the church of Pergamum guilty of honoring Antipas but neglecting his godly example? See, it's right and it's good for a church to honor those who came before us. But a church can't live on its past. Secondly, in this letter, we learn that no church can live on courage alone. We should not miss the good words Christ has to say about this church. He said, I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? and yet you have remained loyal to me. Pergamum was uh, located 65 miles north of Smyrna, the church we talked about last week that, that was suffering so. The great, a great university was there in Pergamum, a massive library of over 200,000 books. This is the first century. As the ancient capital of Asia Minor, it was a church filled, it was a city filled with beautiful places, but also lots of pagan temples. And taking center stage was the massive altar to Zeus, the god of all gods. Pergamum was also known for its temple in honor of the pagan god of healing, whose emblem was a serpent entwined on a pole, and sick people came to the temple from vast distances hoping to be healed. See, all the pagan rites of antiquity were practiced here in Pergamum, combining a toxic mix of political power and pagan rituals and Greek philosophy and worship of Caesar. See, like every other city of its time in the Roman Empire, every citizen in Pergamum was expected once a year to offer incense and declare that Caesar was Lord. But no Christian could do that in good conscience, and thus the stage was set for an all-out spiritual conflict. When Jesus says that Satan has his throne there, he means that Satan had found a place where he can exercise his diabolical influence over an entire region. And though some, uh, through some combination of idol worship and sensual pleasure, Satan had a stronghold on the city. It was a region covered with a very dark cloud of evil. 
Personally, I believe Satan still has his thrones today. They are in areas and places where Satan has ruled for many years. Missionaries know all about it. They speak of various places in our world today where, uh, that are clothed in spiritual darkness, that are resistant to the light of God. And every gospel advance is met with fierce and bitter resistance. But we shouldn't think of uh, that only in remote areas of our world. Remote areas may be held in, that are held in demonic uh, bondage or ignorance or fear. We are much more likely to find Satan's throne today in, in places that we're familiar with, places of cultural influence, perhaps in some great universities or in the seats of political power or in the halls of commerce, maybe even in some seminaries or religious centers where prayer is offered many times a day, but where Christ is nowhere to be found. You see, Satan has many friends in the halls of power. Satan has friends on Wall Street. Satan has friends on the internet. And it's all to the credit of the church in Pergamum that despite the prevailing intellectualism and the widespread paganism in their city, these early Christians established a foothold in the shadow of Satan's throne. It was not easy to be a Christian in Pergamum. It's not easy to be a Christian today in some of the great cities of Europe or the universities of America or parts of the Muslim world. If there was, is an outright opposition, uh, there is subtle and unrelenting pressures to keep quiet, to lose the hard edges of our faith, to refuse to speak openly about Jesus. See, the great battle has always been raged between the God of this world and the God of the Bible. And in that battle, the believers in Pergamum had not yet yielded ground. So what was their great failing? The third point I wanna mention this morning in this letter is that we learn that no church can live with error in its congregation. Jesus points to the great weakness of this church in verses 14 and 15. He said, but I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who are following that same teaching. Now the first point, uh, point of this verse tells us the crux of the problem. You tolerate some among you. Forget the details of what they tolerated for a moment. We see in these five words the weakness of this otherwise strong and brave congregation. They did not practice church discipline. They tolerated uh, some teachers who should not have been teaching in this church. And in the name of misguided love, they refused to toss out those who held to false teachings. Both phrases refer to some general tendencies. Uh, there were some in the church who advocated a loose doctrine uh, and even looser morality. And in the name of being open-minded, they held that the Christian church should be an exceedingly broad fellowship that embraced everybody and just about everything. 
Writing over a century ago, G. Campbell Morgan said that the church at Pergamum, while not committing itself to heresy, had become guilty of broad churchism, attempting, attempting to find room within its walls for all sorts of conditions of people and faith. And that sounds to me like a very contemporary issue, doesn't it, in some churches today? But evidently, at First Church of Pergamum, they said something like, we preach the old doctrines of the faith, the doctrines that were handed down to us from the apostles, but if you don't, if you don't agree with those traditional teachings, it's okay. We make room for you in our fellowship. If you disagree about idol worship, meh, so be it. You can still be counted as one of our congregation. If you frequent the temple prostitutes, uh, we frown on that, but you can still find a welcome home here. If you dislike our preaching about heaven and hell, you can still be part of our congregation. You see, we make room for everybody. You know, this line of thinking is very seductive. You don't have to change. You can believe anything you want. It's all good. It's all good. But if that is the case, and when that is pressed too far, the church ends up with this mixture of truth and error, of purity and impurity, and sooner or later, the evil tends to spread, and sin no longer seems very sinful. And we're seeing it happen before our eyes, both in our culture and in the church. And some would suggest that this is especially true in the area of sexual ethics. There is a great cultural shift, as you know, currently taking place in, in America, in the West, around same-sex marriage. The simple truth of the matter is that until recently, the ch Christian church, in all of its branches, condemned all forms of non-heterosexual behavior. We have a 2,000-year track record of consistency on this issue based on what the church has believed and the Bible teaches. But our culture in the West has changed hasn't it? And now we're not so sure anymore. Even more evangelical churches are seeing this subtle change happening. And the change seems to go a little bit like this on particular this issue. A church takes a stand in favor of traditional marriage. The church gets publicly ridiculed as intolerant, as narrow-minded, some in the church feel uncomfortable with the negative publicity and feel like the church is not being loving enough and not tolerant enough. And so the church de-emphasizes its position in order not to offend the people they're trying to reach. And some people begin to wonder why heterosexuality and homosexuality are not accepted as equal expressions. And they find writers who defend non-traditional viewpoints and lifestyles. And the church moves to a position of silence. And then in the name of being loving and tolerant, the church welcomes those who have a different viewpoint or position. You see, could that be how we get a modern day church of Pergamum? I'll let you decide. But whatever the topic may be, what, um, we know that the slide in a new direction doesn't happen overnight. But I can tell you that once it starts, we tend to move from stage one to stage eight fairly quickly, and the worst of it is this. Some people sitting in the congregation have no idea what just happened. Some keep attending, some keep on giving, some keep on supporting the church, others get up and leave, depending on which ish side of the issue they find themselves. 
And meanwhile, the church seems a bit schizophrenic. On one level, we believe it's, we, uh, in, uh, we're trying to remain faithful to the Bible. On another level, we're tolerating those who may be promoting teachings that are non-traditional teachings of the church, or maybe not even biblical. And the end result is a church like Pergamum that receives both a commendation from the Lord, but also a harsh warning. No church remains in the Pergamum stage forever. We cannot hold fast to sound doctrine while harboring any kind of immorality. In the end, the church will always go one way or the other, and in some cases, the church divides, and in many cases, declines. But here's the fourth point. In this letter, we learn that no church can live in this divided state forever. That brings us back to our Lord's call in verse 16. He says, repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, Christ takes personal offense when his church harbors immorality in its midst, and he threatens to pay a personal visit to Pergamum to fight against these evil teachers. And in this verse, uh, this verse does raise, though, an interesting question. Who exactly is supposed to do the repenting? We might say quickly, well, the false teachers need to repent. But the greater call must be to the church itself for harboring spiritual compromise. In the name of open-mindedness and toleration and even building common ground, there are a lot of churches in the Western world today who have subtly compromised the scripture. And I believe the Lord Jesus is speaking here in this verse more to the church than to a certain group of false teachers. And what he's saying is that pastors need to repent and church leaders need to repent, and church staffs need to repent, and the congregation needs to repent if we stray from the teachings of Scripture. Ultimately, the church must decide what it believes about the authority of God's Word. Is the Bible the inspired Word of God, or is it not? Is it truth or not? And I'm saddened when I think about how far some churches in our own United Methodist Church have strayed away from the strength of John Wesley and our foundations when it comes to the primacy of Scripture. The church has to decide what it wants to be. It is so easy for a church to focus on being popular that sometimes we've compromised our spiritual authority. Now, one could easily imagine the church at Pergamum saying, we desire to be known as a church where everybody's welcome and everybody's opinion is honored. Sounds good. But is that biblical? Is that even practical? Jesus warns that if a church doesn't take strong action, he's going to do it himself, and his judgment is always harsher than ours. The same Jesus who in Scripture says, come to me, and we heard that in the baptism liturgy. But that same Jesus at other times said, depart from me. It's, fr it's a frightening thing when Jesus says, I'm going to fight against you. Because we're going to lose that contest every single time. 
So maybe it's better that we stick with what the Bible says than compromise our morals and our values. So how should a local church address a person who is in leadership on their staff, but in some way not living the life of a Christ follower? You know, let me be clear. We are a congregation who loves people. We love all kinds of people. And uh, we include one and all in this fellowship of faith. We believe in one of the core values of Methodism. We believe in grace. And this is not a message about those we love and those who we don't love. Um, This is a message about standing true to the word of God. G. Campbell Morgan once said, there are people within the borders of our churches to whom we are doing incalculable harm by allowing them to remain there. And I think that perfectly catches the spirit of Christ's warning to the church and to the false teachers and those that were allowing the church to be compromised. If we allow false teachers to remain in the church, not only do we corrupt the church, but we allow these false teachers to think that they're safe when in fact they are hanging by a thread under the sword of God's judgment. We do them no favors by allowing them to stay within the fellowship of the church. But here's the fifth and last thing that I want us to hear from this letter, and that no church really can live without a word of hope, and so this is the word of hope for us today. Christ's message to this church ends in a series of wonderful promises to those who overcome by faith. Look at verse 17. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that that no one understands except the one who receives it. Now, in contrast to the pagans that taught all about some hidden mysteries, Jesus kind of uses that analogy and offers something much greater to those who follow him. And he talks about hidden manna. But he's speaking about a personal connection with our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I'm greater than all the allurements of the world around you. Those who eat the living bread and drink the living water are never gonna hunger or thirst again. The white stone speaks about acquittal and purity. But what's the new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it? Well, no one knows for certain because no living being has ever received that white stone with a new name on it. I think that might be what awaits us in heaven. But sometimes we wonder what heaven is gonna be really like, don't we? If there are millions of people there, will we ever even see the Lord? And will he really even know us? Most of us struggle to keep track of maybe a hundred or a couple of hundred people's names. How are we going to do in heaven? Will we get lost in the crowd? And our text today offers us a wonderful assurance. It says, we will each be known by the Lord. He will call us by name, a name that only we will know. In heaven, not one of us is going to get lost in the crowd. And you say, exactly how can this be? And I'm not sure. No mystery religion can offer what Christ offers his followers. In that great day, when we reach heaven, we will, be know, we will know even as we are known. And Jesus will be our Lord, but he'll also be our best friend. That's his promise.
And so we come to the end today of this difficult message from our Lord, and his words we need to take with great seriousness. It's not enough to be just orthodox in our theology. It's not enough to have courage in the face of opposition. We must go beyond that to say that we will not tolerate in the church those who threaten the purity of the church's testimony in the community. And this is certainly, I know, a not a politically correct message, nor will it likely win me a lot of friends, but it is a message we must hear if the church is truly to be the lighthouse of darkness in the world, an oasis of healing in this broken and hurting world that we live in. We cannot help non-believers by saying that sin is not sinful because Christ came to save all of us. But if a church no longer believes in sin, we have nothing to offer the world. Where sin is winked at or renamed or where the church turns a blind eye to compromise in the congregation, the church commits spiritual suicide. Truth never excuses sin. This is the message of our Lord to the church at Pergamum. And it's his message, I believe, to the church even today. To those who would rather be open-minded about these things, that's your choice, but we here at Redeemer are gonna stay focused on being a church that brings the message of Jesus Christ to a hurting world. That's what we do. That's why we're here. And one of Redeemer's core values has been and will continue to be the Bible is God's word. It is our authority and it's our guide. And as your pastor, I can assure you that I will not compromise that value. I do not believe that the Bible's a document that is subject to the changes of morality and culture of each new generation. It is the revealed word of God given to us for faith and for practice. And so my prayer today is that God may help us all to stand strong for the gospel in an age of moral compromise. And if people call us narrow-minded, Let's take that as a compliment, but stay the course. Let's be as narrow as God's truth is narrow, but as broad as God's grace is broad to love all. Let's pray. Lord, we know that there was only one way for the church at Pergamum to get it right, and that was to repent, to turn from compromise in their lives, to set themselves apart from this world, and the same is true for us or we're gonna find ourselves fighting against God himself. What a sad fate for a group of people, your church, who are supposed to be the called out ones. So forgive us when we come up with new meanings for your changeless word. Forgive us when we sit comfortably in our sin and would rather the authoritative word of God not upset us rather than challenge us. And help us to turn back to the truth you've already revealed to us in Scripture rather than tamper with that message and try to make it fit this new world order. So forgive us, gracious God, and fill us with life, fill us with light, and give us the power to declare your name even in the darkest of places. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.